Welcome to Canada Talks Archery. I'm your host, Kelly Taylor. Canada Talks Archery is proud to have PSE Archery as its presenting sponsor. Check out its latest bow, the Shootdown Pro, designed to have repeatable high performance for target archers while offering the speed and comfort demanded by hunters. Go to pscarchery.com or visit your local authorized retailer. If precision is your aim, PSE is your game. And today we're uh, proud to have Austin Taylor join us for the podcast. And if the last name sounds familiar, is, there's a reason for that. Hi, Austin. How are you doing? Good. How are you? I'm all right. So we're sitting at, uh, at our dining room table because, of course, you're my son. And uh, proud to have you uh, with us and uh, proud of all your accomplishments in archery. Why don't you run through a few of them for us? Uh, well, this year I was awarded Rookie of the Year in ASA. Uh, I was able to make a couple of shootdowns and get third place at both of the shootdowns that I made this year. Uh, and then for indoors, I had a fairly good indoor season as well. Uh, had a good showing at Lancaster, my first pro tournament. Um, Vegas didn't go exactly my way, but I still had a PR at Vegas. And then uh, I made my first pro shoot down at the NFA Indoor Nationals, which that felt great to finally make one. Yeah, and um, that that probably didn't go the way you wanted it to, but uh, it's... You know, it's a high-pressure cooker situation, isn't it? All right, so uh, you're starting off um, uh, maybe your second last year in collegiate archery, and you just got back from the Mid-South Conference 3D Championships. How'd that go? Uh, I had a lot of fun. Um, First round went pretty good. I shot 30 up, and then the second round started off good, um, and then just... Made a couple mistakes, but ended up finishing second in qualification. And then in the shoot down, I was uh, able to get third. So if you're not going into um, the shoot down in first place, you got to hit some 14s, don't you? Uh, not in that one. Uh, everybody gets put back to zero in uh, in that. So it was pretty much just everyone started at the same spot. Okay, so what I wanted to talk about for this podcast and what was probably most interesting to our listeners, um, all the little tips and tricks that you've learned over the years. Um, You know, anybody who saw my Facebook post from the uh, Alberta ASA Classic, I learned a few lessons about the ASA game the hard way. It's probably the best best way to learn them, Um, particularly about equipment, lighting, being able to see the target, what size aperture to use in the uh, peep housing, that kind of thing. And then you um, you made a comment that um, it took you two years to figure out your setup for ASA. So tell us about that. How did, how did that come about? The main reason I think it took me two years was I was a little hard-headed and I want to figure out everything on my own. Um, and it, it really just came down to also uh, me not having everything that I needed at the start to, to play with everything to get it exactly how it how I want it to be and how it uh, how I needed it to be for uh, for known pro um, when I first started ASA back when I started college I really had zero experience in 3D archery um, aside from some of the local 3D shoots that we shot here in Manitoba but a lot of them were just with my hunting bow and at that point, I'm just trying to fling arrows into the into the ten ring and not super um, focused on just hitting the, an eleven or a twelve. I was just there to have fun for those ones. 
Um, but yeah, was, the first one that I shot was uh, the the Collegiate 3D Regionals, and that was on the old course, which is still the hardest course that I've ever shot for 3D archery-wise, just because everything was uh, uphill, and every shot was uh, you're standing in a bright open field and shooting into shadows and if you don't have a scope set up dialed in then you're, you're in a, for a world of hurt on a course like that uh, and that's kind of where I started changing and tinkering and just figuring out what was going to work best for me and uh, I went down the path of ASA archery right after that and that is when I started picking up a little bit more info from the people that uh, I was shooting with and the vendors and buying the necessary equipment to start fine-tuning exactly what I was uh, wanting to improve upon on my, on my scope and my peep setup. Uh, so for starters, I was, <laughs> I was using a pretty old scratched-up lens and obviously that does not, uh, does not help when you're trying to see as much as you can as clearly as you can um, so I, I bought a, a new lens um, and then with that I, I went to a, a lens power higher than what I what I had shot before so then I started dealing with uh, not being able to see clearly out of it just because I didn't have a clarifier set up and then once I figured out okay I'll buy a clarifier I bought the wrong clarifier so uh, I could see clearly through the lens, but I couldn't clearly see my pin. It was just a, a blur. And then that's when I had to buy a, a bunch of different clarifiers to figure out which ones worked best for me. And then after that, it was figuring out which aperture to use. And that took me a little while to figure out exactly what I wanted. And I ended up having to, to drill out an aperture uh, to be in between one of the the stock sizes that come from Hamsky just so that it would um, it would help clear up my pin just a little bit while still having the the aperture that I needed to have the target clear through the lens. Let's just uh, bring our listeners up to speed. The, um, the clarifier is a lens that goes in the peep housing. The power of clarifier that you need is based on the power of the lens in your scope plus the distance from the peep to your scope so it varies from archer to archer yeah and it, it also has a lot to do with your eyes too because a lot of my friends that I shoot with are able to run a stronger powered clarifier to help clear up their scopes while also still being able to see their pin clearly um, but for me uh going into the A plus clarifier from Hamsky, that anything past that and even the A plus is starting to blur out my pin and a B would be just having my pin being super blurry. Um, and if you don't know how that how the Hamsky system works, it, it starts at an A minus, which would be the weakest, and then A and then A plus. So and I think it goes to like C or maybe even C plus. Um, and just being like in the A plus, I'm not super far into the clarifier uh, system, and it's 
that's where my eyes start to to blur out the pin so there's a lot of stuff that um, I can't just say go and use the A plus clarifier and it's going to be perfect for everybody because it just won't uh, it's so, something that you guys are going to have to you're going to have to play with a few different ones and see exactly what works best for you and it might be too that um, you have to play with both well you will have to play with both the clarifier and the aperture just to get everything uh, exactly how you how you want it to be because the thing about the ASA game, particularly in some places like London or um, uh, I think Metropolis can be pretty dark as well, is that uh, one, you can barely see the target at the best of times and trying to figure out where to land the arrow. Um, you need to be able to see clearly and you need to be able to get the right amount of light through to your eye in order to put the pin where you want it to be. That's one of the things I found out in Alberta because did the first round and it was a nightmare. I used my 4X and an A clarifier. And um, I went to uh, well, a good friend of Canada Talks Archery, Brady Haslam, and uh, Vex Shot Archery. And I said, Brady, can you loan me a 6X lens and a, and a B clarifier, please? And he did. And, um, and, and that was a come to Jesus moment because suddenly I could see where, where I was aiming, which was a, a huge improvement. If, it, if your scope's up, like if you feel like it's so bad that you just have to switch, obviously go ahead and switch and then you'll just see an improvement right away if you go to um, kind of like a standard setup and then after that is when you can start fine-tuning everything that you're uh, that you're wanting to try and just making sure that you can uh, you can see everything that you're wanting to be able to see through your scope because uh, especially some most of the targets on the, the regulate like the regulation targets per year um, even in the dark, they're not too terrible to aim at, but if you're getting into like a dark um, shooting lane and a dark target, like those pigs or uh, I think they even brought the mule deer back this year, which it's a it's more of like a dark green deer for the foam, which can make it a little bit trickier when it's dark out too. Uh, that's when you're going to notice a whole lot more uh, definition in the target through your scope compared to just a thrown together scope setup that you just happen to have. When we were in Sundry, the, uh, the target that gave most people uh, the problem is one that we're probably not going to see anymore. And that's the one where the setup, so it looks like the moose is, is walking through a swamp mm -hmm. um, because it's, it's a huge target. Um, with no legs underneath it because it's looking like it's, you know, up, up almost up to its uh, belly in water. And then it's got a really tiny uh, vitals area as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah, luckily for me, that is not a regulation target. So I don't have to shoot that in known pro. Uh, and I think, pretty sure they got rid of it in Alberta. Some. Uh, it was one of the ones they were auctioning of, off. One of the ones they auctioned <laughs> off. And yeah. everybody was super happy about that. Uh, I can't remember who got it. It might have been Jamie, but yeah, that one was definitely a tricky one because you, you look through your scope and all you see is brown. The only way you know where to aim is if there's a different arrow in the target. Yep, and um, even through the binoculars, it was kind of hard to make out the scoring rings. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my nemesis on that course was the Black Panther because it was uh, in a bit of a tunnel. Yeah, the Black Panther is definitely a tricky one. Um, if it's lit up a little bit, there's that muscle right above um, 
above the upper, uh, depending on which way it faces, it's either a little bit high and left or a little bit high and right, uh, that I try to play off of. Uh, or, like, if it's really lit up, then I can just see the ring. Uh, but yeah, the Black Panther can be tricky when it's super a super dark tunnel that you're shooting through. Well, and that's the other thing that you have to learn about the ASA game is, is where to shoot. Um, because it's, it's not necessarily intuitive. Yeah. And you have to figure out, you have to spend some time shooting those targets and, and figure out where you need to put the dot in order to uh, get the air to land. Yeah, and that, that just comes with experience, knowing where to aim. And a lot of people call it area aiming when you can't necessarily see what you're aiming at, but uh, you just have the experience to know this is roughly where the lower 12 or the upper 12 is or, or the IVO if you're playing it safe. You just, it's something that comes from uh, from shooting those targets a little bit and uh, just going off the experience that you have. When we were driving, when we were making that 13 hour trek to uh, Sundry, uh, we were listening to the uh, John Dudley podcast and one of them was um, Judging with Jack. That was uh, Bo Junkie, not John Dudley. Bo Junkie, yeah. yeah. The one line that, that stuck out for me, because we both shoot known, um, and this podcast was all about judging, but the one line that stuck, stuck out for me was, um, control the direction of your miss. Yeah. And that applies in, in known as well, isn't it? And, and you yeah. mentioned to me that you you tend to shoot, uh, call almost all the uppers. Yes. Um, so I started doing this a couple of years ago at Collegiate Nationals. Be strictly because the couple tournaments before then I was shooting at lowers and pretty much every miss that I had was low like if I made a bad shot I dip low and obviously if you're shooting at a lower uh, you don't want to miss low so then at that point I was like you know what let's just change the strategy completely call every single upper before the round starts uh, and just run with it and that was actually uh, I believe the tournament, the collegiate nationals that I had won. Uh, so obviously it worked. I just been running with that strategy since then. Um, and then this year in pro, I was doing the same thing. Started off really good. Uh, shot decent in London, or not? Uh, shot decent in Foley at the start of the year, and then in Fort Benning, uh, I was able to make that shoot down. And then in, um, where was it? It was in Louisiana, where I was just having uh, arrows that were like the tiniest bit out the top. Like I feel like I made a, a great shot in the, the arrowhead line, just a 16th inch out the top of the upper 12. Um, so in London, I switched up my game plan a little bit from then. And if I range the target for, let's say, 48.5, I would dial my sight to 48.3 or 48.4 just so that if I did uh, end up having an arrow that uh, like if it broke good and it uh, I felt like it should hit the 12 it was on the top side of my group it would still be in the the upper 12 uh, and then obviously I'm controlling the miss to go low um, into the tendering uh, instead of going high into the into the eight, 
and that was uh, the second shoot down that I made when I started trying to when I started implementing that system. So let's talk a little bit about your your setup. It's um, Dominator Duo Forty. You're shooting the uh, the Firewire strings. Yeah. And um, the Hamsky Peep. Hamsky Peep. I have the Trinity, uh, the Hamsky Trinity Arrowrest, um, True Ball, uh, Abyss Flexes. The release I'm shooting. I'm using the Excel uh, Achieve XP, and then my scope is the um, Shrewd Nomad uh, 40, 41 I think is the, the size of it, somewhere around there, and then a uh, 6 power X-Shot lens. My, the Dominator is set at 67 pounds, and I'm shooting um, a gold tip triple X out of that, so that's a, a 27 series arrow, and that was that was the one change I made after London, or after a Foley. I don't know why I keep saying London. Uh, after Foley, uh, where I felt like I was just barely, barely missing the, the twelve ring. So I built up some uh, triple X's for Fort Benning, uh, and I, and that was the first one I made. So uh, I just stuck with it. And since then, I haven't changed anything on that bow. Besides for my D loop, uh, I had to switch that out recently because it was starting to fray. But other than that, the sight has stayed the exact same. I haven't needed to change uh, my sight tape at all or um, anything on the bow. Uh, I just, I, it was very nice this year having a bow that I was just 100% confident in, knowing I could pick it up, go out, and compete at the level I needed to compete at. So your triple X arrows. Um, what's your uh, what's your point weight? Uh, they have 140 grains in the tip, and then for my fletchings, I'm using uh, TAC 225 in a four fletch. Um, and this is the first time I've been I've used a four fletch before, uh, and they, they seem to shoot really well. I have no complaints. Well, four fletch is one of the reasons you might want to use a, a drop away rest, but with the four fletch, you pretty much need to, right? Yeah, and like you can shoot um, if you have a Bitsenberger jig. They have that option of a, a 75-105 fletching uh, configuration, so it's kind of like an X-Wing. Um, and you can shoot those ones off of a blade if you don't have a, a super heavy helical. And I had actually built up some X cutters in that configuration um, right before Foley, and then I never shot them. <laughs> <laughs> they just ended up staying in uh, in my arrow box because I switched over to the triplexes for the next one. Yeah, and those uh, X cutters are the ones in my uh, quiver now. Yeah. So, speaking of arrows, there are some people out there that uh, say you should. Uh, you should clock your arrows to determine their spin before you, you choose the, uh, the direction of the helical. There's a lot of people that say that that's nonsense. Where do you stand on that? I have never, uh, I've never done that. And it, and it kind of like, if you think about it, it makes sense to do it. It's just one less, one less thing, um, to really, uh, worry about downrange, but also, um, a lot of times ignorance can be bliss. You just go out there and shoot your bow. Uh, I don't know how much 
clocking your arrows um, would uh, would help. I don't know if clocking my arrows would help at all. I don't. Maybe they are clocked properly. I have no idea. Well, I mean, you've got 50-50 chance, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so um, the triple X's use a slightly different configuration for indoors, uh, heavier point weight. Yeah. Let, let's talk a little bit about that because there's there's a lot of a lot of hand wringing that goes on over the subject of spine and uh, point weight and and all that. And our experience seems to suggest that for indoors at least, where it's 18 meters, um, that's less of a concern than it might be for outdoors. Uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I think a lot of it has to do with the size of arrow. Like if you're shooting um, a triple X. The arrow is a lot bigger and it's a lot easier to tune because of that. Um, it may just because there's a lot, uh, there's a lot more wiggle room because of uh, the size there. You can get the the bow to tune easier because of that compared to something like uh, a Pierce Tour or an X10 or a Revelation where uh, they're a little bit more finicky and you want to have uh, the proper spine for them. Uh, but in my experience with the, those triple X's, even though it's, a, I don't even know what spine, I think it's a, a 150 or a 100, um, they shoot, like they shoot really good, and it didn't matter if I was shooting um, there out of my 67 pound uh, 3D bow or my indoor bow that was at about 58 or 59 pounds. Um, they were just super easy to get to get tuned and to get grouping really well. It seems to me as though, you know, I talked to uh, a bunch of people like Alan Gunter and, and other things like other people like that. It seems to me as though for indoors, one of the most important things is making sure the the fletching stabilizes the arrow as quickly as possible. And that that's why you see uh, pretty much everybody using a bigger fletching, like three inches and bigger. Um, for the majority of people, that's what they're using. For indoors just to help stabilize the arrow and you don't really need to worry about wind drift in in indoors so um, having that big fletching is not going to hinder you in that in that regard but uh, I think um, that's what you're seeing a lot of uh, people using for fletch now too um, is just to get a little bit more uh, stabilization out of the, the arrow as soon as it leaves the bow which I, I might try for fletch this year too for indoors um, just see how it goes I need to build up some new uh, some new indoor arrows soon anyways some triple X's yeah so for your outdoor like for your 3d arrows the triple X's um, using smaller veins than you would indoors yeah um, mainly because even though ASA um, in qualification, there generally isn't um, very much wind, and there, like most of the time, there's zero wind just from where we're shooting. But in the shoot downs, there's a little bit of wind. Um, like the two I made were outdoors, and they ha they were a little bit breezy, and that um, smaller vein will help just a little bit more uh, in the wind. Than, than a bigger one from what I found um, now saying that 
A 27 series air does not fly well in the wind at all. So taking any little help that you can get uh, if you are shooting a 27 uh, is definitely a good idea. Now, are you required to shoot the same arrows in the shoot down that you shoot in the uh, uh, qualification round? No, you can shoot, you can switch whatever you feel like, but I just did not want to tinker with the bow because of how well it was shooting. So we've seen um, maybe more now than, than perhaps earlier where you're, if you're in a tournament where you have the scoring switching to inside out, whether it's the NFAA Indoor Nationals or yeah. the Lucky Dog, you'll see some people will switch to a skinny arrow. Yeah. Just so they don't catch the line. Have you done that? I have done that actually, and I was at NFA Indoor Nationals. Um, so I was shooting my triple X's for qualification, and then I had built up some Pierce Tours specifically for the shoot down. Um, and what I'd done is I I taken my outdoor arrows from the year prior, and I put a, a little bit bigger of a vein on them. So they, uh, I was laughing at. Uh, when I was doing it, I was like, man, these are going to be some really nice hunting arrows when I'm done with them. <laughs> Just because of, uh, like, there was a Pierce Tour with a, a 225 tack. Uh, and they, they shot really well in, uh, in indoors at that, at 20 yards. Um, and what I did for then is, uh, at the time I was shooting a blade, uh, a blade rest, and I just swapped out um, the blade that I was using for a, uh, a freak show blade, which was uh, real, one of those really narrow blades made for skinny arrows. And then with the new uh, PSE 220 system, all I needed to do was swap out the shims for a, a different set, and those Pierce Tours were shooting perfect bullet holes. So it was super easy. Everybody was laughing at me, like, uh, for what I was doing right after I, I shot my 120Xs. I just had my little toolbox with me, put in the new blade, swapped out the shims, and I was I was ready to shoot in two minutes because of how easy that PSE system is. <laughs> right. That PSE system is pretty slick. It's, it's really slick. I, I've been really enjoying to use that system just because of, of how easy it is and how quickly you can make little adjustments and and get your bow uh, tuned up. So one of the things that, uh, I won't say it surprised me, but um, it did stand out. When I was asking you for advice for setting up my Dominator Duo for the triple X's, you suggested putting the rest and the D-loop on so that the center line of the shaft was at the top of the burger hole. How did you come to that conclusion? What I do um, right when I get a new bow is um, I will make, uh, I'll set it to where uh, the bow previously, um, like the bow from the previous year, where that's the same draw length and peep height and draw weight, um, just holding weight, whatever. Whatever my previous bow was set at, I, I, I'll set it to that. But what I change is, or not really change, but what I start up doing is I use a lot 
uh, bigger knock ties. So instead of using like, um, so what I do is uh, I'll use like a center serving um, size serving for my knock ties and just tie them in um, roughly and I'll, I'll pull back the bow and I'll shoot a bunch of arrows through it and see what the bow's doing. And then I'll take the D loop off and just screw those knock ties up or down the string just to get a different knock height. And then I'll put the D loop back on, change my P pipe to where um, whichever distance I move the knock tile, I'll move the peep the same just so it feels the same. And then I'll um, do the same thing. I'll pull pull the bow back a bunch of times and shoot it and um, see what the bow is doing. And a lot of the times you'll find that moving that knock tie up and down really changes the feel of the bow. So if you're if your bow is dipping low or just holding low and um, you don't really know what to, what to do or what to change rather than just dumping a bunch of weight on your uh, on your back bar or taking a ton off your front bar, just move your, your knock point up a little bit and that, that can help with that. So one of the things obviously that you've done a lot of is experimentation. Yes. You know, so if it's giving yourself a, a wide knock point so you can move things up and down or playing with weights or playing with, with clarifiers and peep apertures and all that. There's, there's a ton of experimentation, but it all has to come back to what is working for that particular archer, isn't it? It's, it's, there's no such thing as one size fits all. No, everybody's form is different and how everybody um, shoots is different, right? Like I shoot a thumb, but I have a very light trigger. So I, uh, I just let my, uh, my thumb curl around the, the trigger and then it, it locks, basically locks into to place and I start pulling through and then um, my shot will break relatively quickly, but there's other guys that are, they'll use a, a hinge and um, they'll pull back and they'll, they'll rotate the hinge rather than pulling through and there's other guys that'll pull through the hinge. So it really depends on what style of shot you have and all that changes uh, what you're gonna need to do to the bow. So are there any telltale clues that people can look at? Um, you know, is it, is it grouping size? that suggests they might need to tweak something here or there? Um, is it, um, you know, you mentioned, uh, are you dipping down a lot? Um, is, it, is it where it lands? Is it how it feels? What, what, what do you go by? Or what do you suggest people go by? Everything, um, I feel like a lot of people, this is, there's a couple things to this. I feel like a lot of people, um, they, they tinker too much, right? They, they think that it's, it's gotta be the bow's fault. Well, the bow's a, the bow's it's just a machine, right? Like it, it's the the person operating it that that needs to be on point. And if you're spending too much time tinkering, then you're obviously not spending a, a ton of time practicing. And practice is gonna be uh, the number one thing that that you're gonna have to do to get better. It's not just oh my my bow is doing this today, so I'm gonna tear it apart and change everything and then maybe it'll be better um, you gotta put the put the reps in um, first and see exactly what everything's doing um, before you just start moving moving everything right um, it seems as though 
you, you end up with bad form chasing bad setup exactly. after bad form and after bad setup. That's what right? I that's what I found in college is like I, after shooting for a while, if my dot is doing something indoors, like if my hold isn't exactly what what it needs to be, I I kind of know what to try to get it to where it needs to be. Um, so you you'd see me just running back and forth between the bow room and the range just tinkering with little things but then that translated into uh, a lot of people now oh like this doesn't feel perfect so they're, they're running back and forth also and um, it can it can also be detri- detrimental right like you could change something for the worse and then you can't get it back to where it was and you have to start for, start all over so, uh, what if you do change a lot, have a notebook and mark down every single change that you did. Because there was times when I was doing this that uh, I would it would be detrimental, and I had uh, I had to try and figure out what I did to to erase what I did and get get it back to where it was feeling okay, and then I could could branch off from there in a different direction. So basically give yourself a roadmap back to ground zero. Yes. Yeah. Um, but it's definitely like, uh, first things first, like practice over everything. Um, and then if you feel like your bow isn't uh, feeling the best, then you can then start uh, start tinkering with stuff. Don't just um, shoot a few shots and then go, oh, this isn't working. Uh, and change something and then go few, shoot a few shots and then say, oh, this isn't working. I'm going to go change a different thing. And then sooner or later, you're going to you're gonna look back and you have no way of knowing of how to, what you did, how to get back to, to where the bow originally was. And um, it's, taken, it's taken me a couple, uh, a couple days sometimes to try and figure out, okay, like, what did I do? And I, I sometimes like, wake up right before... I fall asleep going, oh, I did this and I need to, I need to put this back into the bow. I have to make a, a note on what to do the next day. But I recommend just practicing, um, definitely just practice, practice more than you tinker. And then when you do tinker, do one thing at a time. See the and effect. And make a note, see the effect, and shoot that over a a big period, right? Because um, a lot of the times too, like if you take an ounce off or put an ounce on, those first few shots they feel great. Uh, but then after you shoot it for a while, you're like, okay, yeah, this is this isn't act- actually what I want, right? A lot of times when I'm teaching um, at at Heartland Archery, um, I'll pick up a rental bow, and uh, you know, a student will say it, it's it's shooting way right. And um, and I'll, I'll pick it up. I'll take a look at it, and and sure enough, someone has, you know, they've been shooting it way left, so they moved the sight way left, and then anyone picks it up and starts shooting it with something approaching decent form, obviously it's going to be way off. So I think that's a pretty good example of uh, tinkering that's just chasing bad form. Yeah, and a lot of the stuff that. Uh that you might feel like you need to fix with the bow can just be fixed by changing your form a little bit. Like if, 
if you're holding low, it could just be your shoulder, uh, like your shoulder position's off, and that could, uh, it's hard to tell by yourself when you're, when you're shooting that, oh, your shoulder's a little bit high. Helps to have a buddy there. It helps to have somebody there uh, that kind of knows what to look for. So when it comes to form, the one thing I've, I've noticed is that sometimes the holding pattern uh, diagnoses that you'll sometimes see online can help diagnose some bad form too. Yeah. Right? Because, um, you know, we, we know that a long draw length is going to give you a really floaty hold and a short draw length will give you a really jerky hold. So if everything's shooting fine and then, you know, one moment you realize that it's really jerking, you know, maybe check your stance. Maybe you've closed up your stance a little bit too much and now you've got too short of a draw length because just because you've changed the geometry of your body a little bit, right? Yeah, yeah every little every little thing uh, definitely changes how the bow feels and that's why you see a lot of um, pros saying that their, their bow shoots great in practice but whenever you get tournament nerves um, it doesn't feel the same and that's just because they obviously have changed something unknowingly in a tournament or in a high pressure situation and also it's uh, the nerves from a high pressure situation will make the bow not feel as good as it does in practice well I think it comes back to what our friend George Riles always says about practice versus tournaments and that is either way you're just shooting bow mm -hmm. and you know it's probably mentally one of the hardest obstacles to overcome is that you shouldn't be changing things just because it's you're now scoring uh, I always joke that uh, the uh, the nine deadliest words in archery at the Vegas tournament are ladies and gentlemen this is your first scoring round yeah for us for us archers it our own uh, our worst enemy is often ourselves uh, and the pressure that we put on on ourselves to, to do good at a tournament is off often our downfall <laughs> So, do you have any tr uh, tricks that you use to, uh, to to just get yourself into a just shoot bow? No, all you have to, it just comes from experience. Because it's it's not like I don't get nervous at tournaments. It's like it, in Lancaster, obviously I was super nervous as my my first pro tournament of the year. Um, but it's just working through the nerves and um, shooting enough tournaments to know to know how to work through nerves, to know that like you can work through nerves and being comfortable and confident in your tournament, um, in your tournament prep. Now, one of the things that we tell archers in Manitoba, and, and I think this has a lot to do with some of the su success that Manitoba archers have had on the world stage, is always shoot outside your comfort zone. Don't always just go to Selkirk archers and bow hunters and, and shoot the uh, the 720 there and then go to Sanford and shoot the 720 there and just shoot with your friends because that's not going to put any pressure on you, right? Yeah. Try to get to like an Iowa Pro-Am, uh, Rushmore Rumble, Lancaster, Vegas, all these other tournaments that will, will sort of give you the experience that you need to be able to just say, yeah, the nerves are there, but who cares? Yeah, and it, like also, you don't have to go to to the big tournaments too. Like shoot, shoot all the local ones too. Like there are some nerves at local tournaments, uh, and especially uh, like the bigger ones, right? Like 
Um, I know Heartland used to do a, a Triple Crown series where um, a lot of the, the guys in Manitoba would, would shoot them because there was a little bit of money involved. And um, like there's obviously nerves there that you would have to work through. And uh, you just got to get to as many tournaments as you can to to be able to know, you know what what you're gonna do in a tournament, how how you react and how your bow's gonna react. All right, very good, Austin. Thank you for being on uh, Canada Talks Archery. What's next for you? Obviously, it's the uh, 3D Nationals coming up in about a week and a half. Yeah, uh, going down to Foley, Alabama, for the collegiate 3D Nationals. Uh, hopefully, I'll be able to practice, and the weather will be a little. Uh, We'll, we'll cooperate up here. It's not as uh, warm up here as it is down in Kentucky where, where I went to school at. Um, but uh, I think a lot of it too is uh, I've really been enjoying this off season. <laughs> and uh, being able to be home and to be able to hunt has been, uh, has been great and I've been having a lot of fun with that. Um, and I, just kinda, I think i got to kind of rein it in and and realize, okay, I have another tournament. I gotta, I gotta practice for this one too, instead of just hunting every single day and and only shooting three or four times a week at a at the target at the cabin. It is important to take a break sometimes, though, isn't it? Yeah, and uh, like the the tournament season is quite a long one, um, and there are some tournaments, like some indoor tournaments, um, that are coming up in in November and I think December maybe uh, they're on the on the bigger side um, but having the having a couple of weeks just to, to you know go go hunting and fishing or just unwinding is definitely nice and I've really been enjoying that I haven't had that uh, in uh, I don't even know how long because uh, I would shoot all of the all of the big tournaments and they would, those ones would uh, pretty much end in uh, in August or September, and then I was right into the collegiate stuff. Um, and down at school, it, uh, I loved shooting. I loved uh, I loved competing with the competing in college. Um, but there is no break, right? There, uh, every all the college seasons just kind of mold into one. You know, you got you just got to keep rolling. But being back home uh, and doing my master's program online, it's allowed me to you know take a little bit of a break. I'm still shooting, but you know I'm I'm enjoying uh, my other hobbies a lot more now too. Well, it's pretty relaxing to sit in a stand and just hear the the rustle of the leaves around you as you're waiting for that big buck to come in, isn't it? Yeah. All right. Very good, Austin. Thanks very much. That's another episode of Canada Talks Archery. I'm Kelly Taylor, your host. 